Donald Trump called him tough. Rush Limbaugh read one of his articles live on his radio show. Ann Coulter tweeted that article to her one and a half million followers and declared, every sentence is perfect. Ladies and gentlemen, your host, former chief editor of the Jewish Press, Elliot Resnick. Welcome to the Elliot Resnick Show. With us today is Rabbi Yonatan Kolach, author of Masters of the Word, Volumes 1, 2, and 3. Rabbi Kolach, who lives in Jerusalem, is a longtime educator and an expert on the Mepharshim on Chumash. In his three volumes of Masters of the Word, he covers Rashi, Ramban, Evan Ezra, Rashbam, Bechar Shor, Ral Bag, Radak, Rabbeinu Bachia, and more. Volume 3 just came out in the last couple of months, and Rabbi Kolach aims to publish additional volumes covering virtually every major Mepharsh until roughly the present era. The volumes may sound like boring reads, but I assure you that is hardly the case. In fact, so good do I regard these books that I actually bought one of them, among some other books, as a bar mitzvah gift for my nephew. In each volume of Masters of the Word, Rabbi Kolach discusses the historical background of several Mepharshim, the nature of their commentaries, are they pshat, remez, drash, or sod, and the Mepharshim's purpose in publishing his parish in the first place. Is he trying to respond to the Karaites? Is he trying to stress the importance of Diktuk, to highlight the mystical side of Judaism, the rational side, to inspire his audience, to inform his audience? Rabbi Kolach, it's an honor to have you on the program today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It gives me an opportunity to share my passion with your listeners. Pleasure. One subject you often raise in your books is the propriety of disagreeing with Chazal's interpretation of Psukim. I'll give an example that I don't think is in your books, but which I came across a few years ago. At the end of his life, Avram marries a woman named Keturah. Chazal say that Keturah is Hagar, that Avram had divorced Hagar and then later remarried her. The Rashbam, Radak, Chaskuni, and Evan Ezra, though, all say that she was not Hagar, Lefi Hapshat. The Rashbam writes, Lefi Hapshat, Ein Zu Hagar, and the Evan Ezra is even more adamant. A Nenu Hagar, he writes, and even tries to prove that she could not have been Hagar. Clearly, these Mepharshim don't think Chazal had a Mesorah that Keturah was Hagar, or else they would not have disagreed with Chazal. But is this a unique example, or is it reflective of how Mepharshim viewed Midrashic Chazal in general? I guess I'm asking, how should we view Midrashic statements? Are most of them based on a Mesorah that Chazal received from Har Sinai? Are some of them based on a Mesorah? None of them. How should we view Midrashi Chazal? The basis of all Judaism is Chazal. We're on their shoulders. All of Torah Shabbat Peh comes through this group of people. And it's not just one person or two people. It's hundreds and hundreds of people over the course of generations. On the other hand, anyone who says that there's nothing further to say after Chazal already make their comments on the Pasuk is mistaken. If you study any Pasuk, you'll see that the Mepharshim continue to discuss and analyze any question and problem on the Chumash and don't just say, well, Chazal said this, and therefore there's nothing more to say. Furthermore, you have to also realize that there's no one opinion in Chazal. Chazal is many, many different voices, and they often disagree with each other. You know, a famous line between Rabbi Akiva and some of his colleagues is, they say to Rabbi Akiva, there were reactions to how Rabbi Akiva was darshaning. So it's not a monolithic view when we speak about Chazal. Ma'avet uh, means corrupt or twist? Ma'avet means yes, corrupt into twist, right. The other thing to realize is that Chazal 
are presenting what we call a drash, which is significantly different from pshat. There's a pshat way of looking at the Chumash and another way of looking at the Chumash, which is another fundamental idea of traditional Judaism that was passed from Chazal, that shivim panim la Torah, there are many different ways to view the Torah. And it's our job to try to mine the Torah and try to find out as much as information as there is. So going back to your question about disagreeing with Chazal, most of it in the Mepharshim is to add on. And Chazal aren't clear themselves. For an example, there's a problem in the text with Yaakov with the stone that was under his head. If First he took a bunch of stones and then it says Evan. So Chazal say that all the stones were fighting with each other and they all became one stone. Now, are they presenting a fact that that's what happened? Or are they presenting an idea? Similarly, Avram Avinu came from Ur Kazdim. According to Chazal, they have a whole story about how Avram Avinu was thrown into a Kivshana Eish and God saved him from the Ur, from the furnace of Kazdim. Are they presenting a fact? Are there other ways to explain Ur Kazdim? You know, Chazal themselves, you don't always know if they're presenting factual information or they're presenting a, a concept behind it. Even the case of Ketorah, Zohagar, uh, first of all, it's interesting. In a certain sense, it is shot because Yitzchak is coming back from Be'er Lachai Ro'i, which was the last place which we knew where Hagar was. So there's a connection between Hagar and Be'er Lachai Ro'i and Avram then taking Ketorah because that happens right afterwards. So there is some element in the text which seem to tie Hagar with Keturah. But apart from that, what are they saying? Are they presenting factual information or not? Rashi would say that in many cases they're presenting factual information. The Rajbam and the Ibn Ezer, and even the Ramban would say, it's not factual information, it's interpretive. They have a concept they want to present. I think the area that gets a little sticky is when the Ibn Ezer says that Chazal are wrong, and he tries to prove it. That's when the Ramban goes, I won't say crazy, that's not the right word, it gets him very upset. And for instance, the question about Yocheved, who was the 70th person? There are only 69 names, but Shivim Nevesh, who was the 70th? It doesn't say. So there are many different ideas in the Mepharshim about that. Chazal say that it was Yocheved. So the Rambam, the Rosh, many of the different Mepharshim have different ideas about who the 70th were. They don't say it's Yocheved. But Ibn Ezra said it could not have been Yocheved. Now, once Ibn Ezra says that Chazal are wrong, then the Ramban writes a whole long tirade against him. And I think somebody like the Ramban would say, I can present other ideas, alternatives, but for you to say that Chazal are wrong, that's already stepping over the line. So I think in certain areas you'll have those types of disagreements I would end with one thing. You know, in general, how do I know that an idea is a serious idea? Even within Chazal, very often, the Rambam says this, the Ibn Ezra says it, others, the opinion that's quoted can be a das yachid. It's not a generally across-the-board view that accepted by everybody. And it's what's called a das yachid. It's, it's an individual idea. If it's an individual idea, the Rambam says, You can disagree with it and say that it's not necessarily correct. So when I look at certain ideas to say, can you disagree with it or not? I try to look and see 
how widespread is that idea? Does it appear in the Medrashim? Does it appear in the Gemaras? Does it appear in the Sifrei, which is a very earlier source? And that goes back to the question, is something, an idea that's brought, is that their own idea? Or is it a Mesora that was handed down? And once it's a Mesora, Rava, in fact, in the Gemara, Rava says, it's a Mesora of Allah, I won't disagree with it. But if it's your own perush, I can disagree with it. And Ibn Ezra has that formulation also. We don't know what's the Mesora and what's creative ideas by Hazal. Obviously, if something is Mesora, it becomes unarguable. But take an example. This is my own feeling about it. It could be wrong. Akedas Yitzchak. There was a popular idea. There is a popular idea in the last 40, 50 years that says that Avram Avinu failed the test. He should not have done what he did. In my opinion, that's already crossing over the line because I think the notion of the Akedis Yitzchak as being such a central idea in Judaism, you know, in the Tfilos, certainly in Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur and the Tchia Shofar, and it's so widespread and so accepted as a fundamental Jewish idea that this was a test that Avram Avinu passed. I see viewing that as Avram's failure as an example of crossing over the line of a fundamental idea of, of Chazal. I sometimes think that if the Chazal would put out the Midrashim today, they would have written an introduction. They would have said the following statements are either based on things we've received from our fathers and grandfathers all the way from Har Sinai, or these statements are just our interpretations. They didn't write that introduction because they do that nowadays. That's not the way they did things back then. And so because they didn't write the introduction, we don't exactly know, like you're saying, when they're giving us something they had gotten from their ancestors and when they're giving us something which they just thought based on their vast knowledge and you know brilliance, but not necessarily based on the tradition. So we're left hanging sometimes, not knowing if it's a tradition or if it's just their interpretation. Um, in your last volume, you quote the Radak's father as saying that it's impossible to properly interpret a Pasuk without being an expert in Hebrew grammar, diktuk. I remember years ago reading a very similar statement in the Chobos Halavavos, so I wonder if you could explain what they mean, because most Frum Jews nowadays are not very knowledgeable in Dikduk, and yet the amount of Torah knowledge in the Frum community is Baruch Hashem vast. So what exactly did the Chobos Halavavos and the Radak's father mean? With any language that we know or that we're studying, you have to know grammar. And that's true, certainly, for the Chomish as well. The more grammar a person knows, the better somebody can understand the Chomish. The Chomish is full of problems, and that's intentionally so. There are always issues, and many of them are grammatical problems, you know, such as, So automatically, somebody sees that, there's the problem of the singular versus the plural, right? Re'e means see in singular. Lifnechem, it, it should be re'u or lefanecha. You can't re'e lefnechem. Somebody who's on to dictate, that's a simple case, automatically will realize that there's a problem over here that has to be addressed. The singular and the plural is something that happens throughout the Chumash. So there may be a singular solution, maybe a local solution, but all the time you have these grammatical problems. Start from the beginning. Right? Right off the bat, there's a problem there. Now, if you don't know Hebrew well, you won't see the problem because Bereshit is a smichot form. In the, how do we translate? In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. But that's not 
what it says. It should say Barishona, but it says Bereshit. Bereshit means in the beginning of. So beginning of what? And that's not a sentence. Bereshit simply means in the beginning of God's creating heaven and earth, then what? So that's a sensitivity that somebody has that if he doesn't know grammar well and language well, will not be bothered by it and then won't look in the Mepharshim. Rashi right there on the second Rashi and the Chumash addresses it. He presents Chazal's solution and then he gives his own Pshat solution. But it goes throughout the Torah. I'll give you another example. In Breshis, talking about the brothers attacking Shechem. So it says, Shabu Vayavozu. Vayavozu means they took all the booty from the camp. But what does Shavu mean? So if it's Shavu, if you put the emphasis on the first syllable, it's different from Shavu. Shavu would mean they went back and they took all the booty from Shechem. If it's Shavu, Vayavozu, it means they captured all the inhabitants of Shevi, which means the captives, Shavu. Now, if you realize that there's a difference between Shavu and Shavu, and let's say somebody reading the Torah says Shavu, then he's really reading the Torah incorrectly. Now, that's a little even more fine distinction. But to even realize that there's a difference and to be sensitive to it is very important. One reason I love your books is the amount of historical and bibliographical knowledge you incorporate in them. I want to mention just two facts and ask you to elaborate on them. First, you write that the Rambam's son wrote a parish on Beratius and Shemos that was discovered in a British library and published for the first time in 1959. So I apologize for the question, but can that possibly be true? You mean this parish was sitting in a library for 700 years collecting dust before someone discovered it? So the answer is yes. It was sitting in the library for 700 years. There's more to that story as well. I refer you, I have a a good friend of mine, his name is Rav Shimon Alchul, who wrote, uh, there was a descendant of the Rambam named Rabbi Maimon, interestingly enough, Moshe Maimon, who lives in uh, Lakewood, I believe. He published Rav Avram ben Rambam's Perush on the Chumash and also some of his other works. And the article, if you want to read it, is in Tradition, Winter of 2022, Basically, he has a whole discussion about Rav Avram ben Arambam's works. So if anybody's interested or yourself, you can take a look at that article. It's very clear and an excellent article. The answer is yes. Don't forget, the book was written in Judeo-Arabic. Most people didn't understand it, maybe not even known what it was. And it was stored in some library. And it was only discovered in the 20th century. And it was translated from Arabic into Hebrew, and that's why we have it at this point. Most Ashkenazi Jews didn't have it because they didn't know the language. So the answer to your question is a definite yes. I don't want to sound ignorant, but I don't know how these things work. So someone goes into the library, they discover this manuscript, and what, it has Avraham's signature on it, and then they test the parchment, they see it's 700 years old. I mean, how do they know it's from the Rambam's son? How do they know it's from his era? Sometimes the Kali phone at the end will say, when it's copied over where it's from and will identify what it is. I don't remember, particularly with Rav Avram ben Arambam. Again, I would probably refer you to the article. You know, the authors themselves often make cross-references to things that they wrote. I wrote about this in my parish on the Chumash. Listen, sometimes, you know, you had Drashot Haran, 
they didn't know exactly which run authored Drashot Aran. For a few hundred years, they didn't know until they began to do research and they came to the conclusion that it was Rabbeinu Nisim of Gorona. Sometimes it isn't clear, but a lot of times it is clear. Okay, so you're saying not necessarily in this example, but in general, so maybe the Rambam's son might have mentioned in some others for him, like I wrote in my parish on Chumash, X, Y, and Z, right. and then we see that in this document that you find, and then you could say... Right. Enough of those examples, you realize it must be what he's referring to. That's number one. Number two, I don't know offhand whether the manuscript identified him as the author. I don't know. I have to maybe read that article again and see if he talks about that. Right. Okay. Um, Like the Rambam's son's parish, the Radak's parish on Sefer Bratius was first published roughly 700 years after he wrote it in 1842. You note in volume three of Masters of the Word, that the Radak's parish on Nach was always very popular. So if so, why did it take so long for his parish on Baratius to be published? You have to keep in mind how many copies were made of the commentary. So from the Nach, the Kenyabula, those things that were published before 1500, the Radak's commentaries were among those that were published several times. That shows they were very popular. His parish on the Chumash for a variety of reasons. First of all, as far as I know, there are no super commentaries on it, earlier ones. That's because it was discovered later. It probably was not copied over very much. I think there was only one copy. And number two, it was only a, we don't know for sure, but presumably it was the last thing he worked on and he died before he got a chance. He only wrote it on Bracious. There's no commentary on Shmos Vayikra. There's no reference to it, so he probably did not write it. And he probably died or ran out of steam and didn't complete it. So something that was incomplete wasn't copied as much, wasn't taken as seriously. In the 19th century, Wiesenschaft was a school of not always traditional Judaism, but they were interested in Jewish history and Jewish books. They studied all the books and they came up with it. Don't forget, the libraries 200 years ago, not like libraries today, where you can go and press something and find the books. Sometimes you can't even get to the library, like in Russia. You know, the Leningrad Library had many, many books, but for the last hundred or whatever years, you couldn't get to it because of communism. And it was only recently that there's more access to it. And so it's not always so easy to get to these libraries. And often they're stored in some rooms back there. And it's not like everything's accessible, certainly not like today. So, you know, the fact that it wasn't found is not a great Kiddush. I mean, you and I, I don't deal with manuscripts. I have a Chabrusa named Rav David Kamenetsky. He's an expert in manuscripts. So when I asked him this question about manuscripts sitting around, he said, of course. There was a manuscript of the Bach, which from several hundred years ago was just discovered now and is being published now. So this happens very often now, that things that have been sitting around are suddenly discovered and pop up in libraries, individuals. So it's not totally unusual. Interesting. Okay. Um, another reason I really value your books is for the biographical information you include on each Mephorish. This information brings the Mephorish to life and also sometimes helps explain why the Mephorish may be raising a particular issue in his parish on Chumash. So, for example, you're not up to the modern era yet, so I'll give this example. Roshamshan Rufal Hirsch constantly connects Torah Shavachsav to Torah Shaval Peh in his parish on Chumash which is extremely important, even if you know nothing about Rav Hirsch's life. But I think a person appreciates these connections more 
when he understands that Rav Hirsch was living in an environment in which Reformed Jewish leaders were denying, even mocking, the authority of Torah Shaval Peh. So with that in mind, I was wondering if you could perhaps talk a bit about the Radak's life, as it's clear from your book that he wasn't just a Mefarsh on Chomish, he was an active communal leader who was heavily involved in the fights surrounding the Rambam's works. Right, so the Radak was an older man when the uh, controversy of the Rambam broke out. The Rambam died in 1204, but the, call it the second controversy was in the 1230s when there was a tremendous uh, uproar and opposition to the Rambam's work, which tore the Jewish community apart. The Radak came to the defense of the Rambam. He lived in Provence, and many of the people in Provence were ready because of the intellectual background and environment of Provence, which is in southern France, were kind of comfortable with both secular studies and Torah. Many of them were. Those of people particularly who came after the Muslim invasion of Spain in 1140s, they emigrated to Provence. And Radak and his family were one of those. So he was a strong supporter of the Rambam. And he was sent, there were many people involved. There was a very divisive debate in the Jewish world. And he was sent by the people who were pro-Maimonists to Spain to try to convince some of the, what they felt were the middle of the rotors, which would include the Ramban, the Ramah, and Al-Fakar in particular. He thought he can convince this Rav Al-Fakar, who was in, I think, Toledo, to defend and join the pro-Maimonist group. What was very interesting, there are letters exchanged between Radak and Al-Fakar that we have, and it's very personal, and it really gives you a, a sense of who the Radak was. He describes his disappointment in, first of all, Al-Fakar did not accept what he was saying. In fact, he also attacked him. It's very interesting, the debates often in today's society between different groups in orthodoxy, you can see reflected in those letters between the Radak and others over the issue about primarily the Rambam, which is secular studies and Torah, and the balance between the two, and is it legitimate, not legitimate. And he really, in a very personal sense, emotional also, he defends himself. He says, I'm not a great person, I'm a small person, but I've been studying Gemara, I teach Gemara all these years, and I'm a from Jew, and all the accusations against the pro is not one of the accusations where they don't keep Torah mitzvahs. He says, that's not true. It's not true about me. It's not true about the people that I know. So you get a real sense of what's going on in the person. And then more generally about what's going on during that time. And you can also appreciate when the Radak will make comments to, as I said, you know, part of my idea of the book is to appreciate the commentary in light of not only the person themselves, which is what I call personal Pashanut, but also time and place Pashanut what's going on at that time, that you can really fully appreciate his comments in a broader picture. You know, what you said about Rav Shimshim Rafael Hirsch, it's not just Rav Shimshim Rafael Hirsch. All the commentators in the 19th century are all trying to make the connection between the Torah Shebechtav and the Torah Shebechtav, because the reform movement and the early Haskalah was trying to show that Rabbinic Judaism was made up. It's not tied to the Torah. So all the, the Kitab and Kabbalah, the name Kitab and Kabbalah, Malbim, 
is Torah the mitzvah, to show the connection between the Torah and the mitzvah. Rav Hirsch also, as you said, the Torah to Mimo also, even in the late 19th century, is to show the connection. He has the Chumash on top, in the middle he has the quotations of Chazal in the Gemaras, and the bottom is his footnotes explaining it. They're all out to defend Torah Judaism because it was being attacked by Reform Judaism as saying that Rabbinic Judaism was concocted by the rabbis and there's no connection. The rabbis say X, there's no connection to the text. So that was, and the other thing I want to point out, which goes back to the question of grammar, one of the accusations against Orthodox Judaism was the people writing commentary don't know Hebrew. So these people were trying to show we know Hebrew, not just we know Hebrew, Chazal know Hebrew better than you know Hebrew. And that's, you know, to some extent, uh, Rav Mecklenburg in Tabak Kabbalah sometimes goes overboard with it. He comes up with really original derivations of words. But that's what they're trying to show is that Chazal knew grammar and they were not ignorant of the Hebrew language. I want to ask you about the Ralbag, and I'm asking you about the Ralbag, because these people are in your latest volume, so I figure I focus a little bit more on these uh, people as opposed to Rashi and Evan Ezra, who are more in your earlier volumes. But, um, excuse me for the questions a little bit long, but first of all, I had forgotten that the Ralbag was so well-respected in the non-Jewish world. I mean, I had read this years ago, but I completely had forgotten. I mean, you write in the book that the Pope actually ordered one of his books on astronomy to be translated into Latin, and that the Ralbag invented an astronomical device that was used by sailors for hundreds of years. Scientists even named a crater on the moon after him. So feel free to share any other information on the Ralbag that you think is interesting. But I want to focus for a moment on his views on divine knowledge or foreknowledge. For years, people presented his views as being extremely radical. As the Ralbag said, that Hashem does not know what people will do in advance. Because if he did know, they would not have Bechir Chafshis, they would not have free will, he argued. But the way that you presented the Ralbag's views, it didn't really seem so radical to me. Because you write that the Ralbag believed that Hashem is all-knowing, which means that he knows everything that is either true or false. Our future actions, however, don't fall into the realm of true or false facts, since nothing has happened yet. When I was in college, I actually had a conservative philosophy professor, miraculously, who explained that Hashem knows the future because he already saw it, literally, just like we see and know the past. In other words, Hashem does not know the future because he magically predicts the future in advance. He knows it because he actually saw what we did, just like people in time machines and movies know the future. They know it because they saw it. Now, if this is true, and I actually think this is the best solution to the problem of divine knowledge and free will, then the Ralbag's statement is actually not very controversial at all, it seems to me. The Ralbag says Hashem does not know anything in the future before we do it. Yes, that's true. But for Hashem, the future is the past. It's after we did it. So I was wondering if you could comment on that a little bit. First of all, I'm not a philosopher. I mean, I had to study it in order to, for the Rambam and for the Ralbag, but it's something that I had to study and read up on. It was not my major in in college. Um, Okay, aside from that, the idea that your professor in college made is one of the solutions to the problem of God's foreknowledge versus freedom of will, which is a fundamental problem for philosophers of medieval Judaism, maybe even today. That's not the same solution that the Rabag gave. I just want to clarify that because you're kind of merging the two together. The solution that your professor gave is to say past 
present and future for God is not like it is for us. So God knowing what somebody's going to do is not the future. He knows it, but he knows it like we know the past. So it's not like he knows the future and therefore we don't have freedom of choice open to us. But God knows the future. Rabag's solution was taken from Aristotle. And Aristotle gave an example of, is there going to be a sea battle tomorrow? And he says, that's not true or false. Right now it's not true or false. And God only knows something that's true or false. And therefore, it's not under the category of knowledge. It's not knowable. And therefore, it's not that God is lacking knowledge. It's that it's not knowable information. That was the view of Aristotle. It was adopted by Rabag. And it's different, again, from your professor, because your professor is God knows it. According to Rabag, God doesn't know it because it's not knowable. Now, it is radical because, number one, he's the only major Jewish philosopher who adopts the solution to the problem of God's foreknowledge versus freedom of will. Number two, it means that things that will happen will catch God by surprise. Now, I don't think we want to view God as being caught by surprise. And number three, in the Torah itself, it says, Kilo shalem avona maria ad and it's only adora revi yeshuvaina. Obviously, God knows what's going to happen in the future. To say that God doesn't know it because it's not knowable kind of goes against this basic view. So I, I think to say that Rabag adopted this view and that God, you know, the famous cases by the Akeda, you know, this is really where he said it. Because why did God have to test man? It's a problem everybody says. Why is God testing Avram? He doesn't know what Avram's going to do. So the Rambam gives his solution. The Ramban gives the solution. All of them first give the solution. The Rabag solution is, you're right. God doesn't know because God doesn't know the future. And in fact, he supports it because after Avraham does what he does or doesn't do what he does, what he's about to do, God stops him. He says, Now I know. Beforehand, I didn't know. But now I know. So that's really where the Rabag says it. And as I said, it's a controversial position because to say that God doesn't know what's going to be in the future, whether you say it's not knowable or not, is still a very radical position to take. Right. Okay. So, I mean, I was merging the two. And now that you explained where the Rao Bag says it, I guess I could see how I probably cannot merge it, at least for the, the Rao Bag. But I do think, at least in theory, you could merge it because according to what this professor said, he was a religious Christian, which is interesting, not your usual philosophy professor to be a religious Christian. But according to what he's saying, Hashem does not know anything in advance, but because Hashem is eternal and timeless, practically speaking, he winds up knowing everything instantaneously because he already saw it. So I thought you could merge it, although the way you're, the way you're saying whether Al-Bag actually does say it with Al-Qaeda, I guess maybe it would be problematic. But okay, I have one more question of substance and then a few other questions, but not, not of like deep substance. So my last question of substance is... Another one of the Mepharshim you discuss in Volume 3 of Masters of the Word is the Ramban. Now, you don't write this in the book, but it's my understanding that the Ramban is, quote-unquote, your favorite Mepharsh. And I believe you is the favorite, or one of the favorites, of Rav Shamsun Rafal Hirsch as well. Why do you like the Ramban's parish so much? You're right. Ramban is one of my favorites Mepharshim. Anybody in my Chumash class knows I say it straight out. First of all, as a person... If you read his biography, he's just such a fascinating person, has so many different aspects to him, intellectual, he's a Jewish social activist, 
being very involved in many different debates, familiar with the famous disputation against Pablo Christianity. At the end of his life, he does what he believes. He made Aliyah to Israel, and he was very active there. He's traveling around. He's getting information physically. He's an active person, and mentally, he's always learning and always growing and always coming up with new ideas. So I just find him to be a very inspirational commentator. I also appreciate his commentary because, unlike a lot of the other commentaries, you know, Rashi for sure, and Ibn Nezer and the Rashbam, they where they just present their ideas. Ramban develops ideas. He presents, let's say, Chazal presents Rashi, and then he'll talk about the pros and the cons of their ideas. So you get into his mind. You get to see how he's thinking, how he approaches things. And I think that's an invaluable tool in learning to be a parshan and how you go about it. And the last point I want to make is very innovative. And this is something I mentioned in my book. I only gave a few examples, but every single parsha, there are countless examples. We will present a problem and he's the first one to present his own creative solution. Just to give an example, last week I talked about Vayelech Moshe, Vayedaber Ben Israel. So the problem, it's not clear where Moshe is going. Where's Moshe going? Why is he going? Chazal addressed the problem. Rashi addresses it. See, there are two problems. Problem number one, he was just standing with the Jewish people in Nitzavim. So why is he going anywhere? They were there already. So the Ramban solves that in a pshat way. They got together for the Brit, the Brit's over, they went home, okay? So now they're not there anymore. But you have a second problem. The second problem is, what's the normal way that Moshe would call the Jewish people and gather them? So it tells us in Parshas Baloscha, God commands Moshe, make for yourself two trumpets. And according to Chazal, it was only meant for Moshe Rabbeinu. And the way he would gather the people, they would blow their trumpets, everybody would hear it, and they would come to City Hall or Mishkan Hall and to come and hear Moshe speaking to Klal Yisrael when he gathered them together. That's the way he did it. If that's the case, why didn't Moshe do that now? Why didn't he blow the trumpets and have the people come to him? So Chazal answer, it appears, and it appears elsewhere as well, that ain't Shilton Biyamamavet. This is the day Moshe was going to die. And you don't have authority anymore to blow the horn and everybody come. The Ramban was the first one to suggest, in a very moving type of way, that Moshe went to say goodbye to the people. And in fact, he says, whenever somebody leaves somebody else, whether you're a worker in a job, you have to know you don't just walk out and leave or just send a a quick email, you know, I'm leaving after you've been working somewhere. He's been with them for 40 years. He is going to them, and he calls it asking Rishus. It's moving, number one. And number two, it also teaches the proper way to, of behavior. And he's the first one to suggest it. Others repeated that idea, but he's the first one to suggest that Moshe was going around to the Shvatim, to the tent, saying goodbye and letting them know in a personal way that he's leaving. So he's always creating new ideas. And that's what goes back to what I said before. The Torah is chock full of ideas. And the phrase in the Torah, in Hazinu, it says, The Torah is not rake. What does it mean the Torah is not rake? It means the Torah is full of ideas. It's so full of ideas. It's our job 
to find it. And if it seems like it's, there's nothing here, the Yerushalmi and the Gemara says, it's Mikem, it's because of your deficiency. You're not looking for it. But the goal of somebody studying the Torah is to find the ideas. And to find the ideas, you have to see the problems. You have to see what's going on. You have to also see what everybody said before you so you can appreciate what they said and also see maybe you have something new to contribute. Just to give an example for Vayelech about time and place, Parshanut. Oznaim Latorah of Sorotskin, who passed away, I think, in the 1960s, 1970s, he moved to Israel and he was in a good... Uh, he wrote this commentary called Oznaim Latorah. So why is it say Vayelech Moshe? Not because he wanted to go to the people. He wanted to get away from Yoshua because he was going to the people to convince them that Yoshua was a good replacement, which the Psukim say. But he adds another point, and that is, unless you consult with them. Now, nobody said that before him. Let me just translate that. You can't appoint a leader for the people unless you get their approval. Now, that idea is from the Gemara. But he's the first one to use that for why Moshe is going to them, because first of all, he's not doing it in front of Yoshua, because it's not, you know, have the vote in front of, you know, your candidate. But he's the first one to suggest that Moshe had to, you know, God said, God it was God's appointment, right? God's the one who said it. But Moshe had to get their approval in order for him to become the next leader of the Jewish people. I think that's an example of democracy, of somebody living in a society where you have to get the approval of the people and voting, etc. I understand that you give a three-hour shear every Wednesday evening on which you take a pasuk from that week's parsha and go through about 20 mefarshim, examining how each one interprets the pasuk and answers the questions it implicitly raises. First of all, is that shear open to the public? And if someone wanted to join that shear, how would you go about doing that? So I've been giving this year for 18 years. It wasn't always three hours. It started off like an hour and a half, but it got longer and longer. In the beginning, I used to give it at the OU Center, but after COVID, I did it by Zoom, and I'm continuing to do it that way. It's a benefit because people join from New York and different places, and they can also, you know, take breaks in between. They put their camera on black, and, you know, they go do whatever they have to do. Uh, now, there's been a change. First of all, let me just talk a little more about the Pashanuch here. This is my passion because I think it's so important to see not just the uh, commentary in isolation, but to line them up and to see the different types of solutions to a problem. Like the example I gave of Ayelech Moshe, there's so many different solutions. Rabbeinu Bachi speaks about it emphasizes Moshe as a holech, as a doer. And he talks about the importance of being a proactive person who doesn't sit around on his laurels, but goes and is active and does things. And he puts that into Moshe, Vayelech Moshe. He was that type of person. Other people say, Rabbeinu Ephraim says, you know, it's really based upon a phrase in the Torah, Ki holech adam olamo. It's a pasuk in Mishlei that man is going to the next world. So when it says Vayelech Moshe, it's really saying Moshe was about to leave this world and he's about to die. It's a different, totally different way of looking at it. Then it Sim says something which is, I think, very radical. He says Moshe is very old at this time. 
and he couldn't project his voice so well. So people couldn't hear him as they used to. So he had to go to the people and speak to them up close. That's like a, you know, a totally different view of Moshe, totally different reading of it. And um, there are so many different countless ways of explaining Vayelach Moshe, two simple words, and there's a whole drama and a whole story behind it. But you have to hear what the Mepharshim have to say and appreciate that there's Shivan Panulatori. There's so much depth to every Pasuk. There's so many ideas to take home that are important. And I'll emphasize that it's particularly important today because a society that we're living in today has gone a little crazy, uh, Western society. And it's so important to study the Torah, to study the Mepharshim and the ideas that they are extracting from the Torah so that we have something to hold on and to realize this is Jewish values and Jewish beliefs and Jewish traditions and, and what is sanity so we don't get caught up in a lot of the Mishagasim that are out there in the world. Now, to answer your question about the Shi'ur, I decided in the last two weeks, I'm going to now give the Shi'ur only once a month. Number one, my voice is not always holding up. But also because as long as I give the shear, which I spend most of the week preparing, and I also write up a summary, which can take hours to write up, I won't be able to work on my next volume. So in order for me to really write my next volume, I decided to kind of cut back to once a month. If anybody is interested in joining, they could send me an email and saying, I'm interested in joining, and I'll send you the link to the shear. It's on Wednesday nights, Israel time, it's from... 7 to around 10.15, and in the United States, it's from you know 12 to 3.15 in the afternoon. Do you have a public email address they can email you at? Ycolach at gmail.com. Okay, Colach has a T, I think, right? Ycolach, K-O-L-A-T-C-H, at, gmail. at gmail.com. Perfect. Okay, last question. Which Mepharshim will your next volume cover, and how many Mepharshim do you hope to eventually cover altogether? So the next volume, the plan is, if God gives me the strength and health, is Rabbeinu Nisim, the Ran, who wrote Rashat Aran. He also wrote, we have some of his commentary on the Chumash. Balaturim and Chachmei Ashkenaz would include the Rokech, Rabbeinu Afrayim, Rabbi Chassid, but primarily it's going to be the Balaturim, who's more or less the end of Chachmei Ashkenaz, of German commentary. Then the Akedat Yitzchak, the Barbanel, the Tzror Hamor, and then Sparno. Those six commentaries. Each one has a different parsha to show that the commentary has something to say about each parsha, which would typify the commentator. This last volume took me between five and eight years to do. The work and the writing was probably around six years, and then finding a publisher and getting that done took another two years or so. So, I don't know. Hopefully, I will have the strength, the koach, and the longevity to continue, but it's up to God. But are you hoping, you know, in your ideal world, eventually, you know, five or six volumes or even more? Or Listen, in the Chumash, there are five volumes, and I do two for each volume. So that would be ten volumes. Okay. So right now, I've only done three so far. So, you know. You no. do roughly five Mepharshim or a little bit more per volume. So ten volumes would be almost would be 50 Mepharshim or more. Right. Well, we'll see. We'll see. 
Twin well, Legends. Thank you so much for joining the program and thank you for your books. I really enjoyed them. Like I said, I gave one of them to my nephew for his bar mitzvah, so. I don't know if he can, Mirza Shev will appreciate it, you know, when he gets older. Right, 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 right. Okay, thank you so much again. Okay, thank you. All right, that does it for us. If you like this podcast, please consider subscribing to it and giving it a good rating and a nice review if you're so inclined. I hope you enjoyed the episode and have a great day or a great night, depending on when you're listening to this podcast. <laughs>